Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Rebecca and today we are here with Dr. Laura Happy and she has written a book that is going to be a really useful tool for parents but before we get into talking about the book tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay thanks so uh, I am a pharmacist by training I've been a pharmacist for gosh 16 years now Um, but I actually don't work in a pharmacy I'm a professor Um, so I teach the next generation of pharmacists I teach at two different universities. I teach at Wingate University School of Pharmacy, which is here in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I live. And uh, I also teach in an online program at the University of Florida. So I teach uh, using the Zoom technology like we're using today. Wow, that's pretty cool. I hadn't thought about that. I guess, so you do your classes live just via Zoom. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. I enjoyed looking at your book and I showed it to my 11 year old today, which what is the age range that you would say is good for this book? Rebecca, I'd say the age range is fluid because I think all kids are different, but generally Mm -hmm. when I'm asked that question, I say middle school. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really curious to hear how your 11 year old reacted. I've had parents uh, as young as nine reading it to their nine year olds that had really great conversations Um, so yeah, I generally say middle school, but it can really depend on what experiences your, your kids have had and what the community is like, where you live, you know, what they've heard about that sort of thing. Um, when I was writing the book, my oldest child was 12 and I did a little focus group with him and his friends just to kind of understand what they did and didn't know. And, um, in our community, they, they knew about drugs. They had talked about drugs at school, but not really any specific type of drugs. So just the, just the concept that there's this class of drugs called opioids was kind of new to them. Um, but I'm sure there's 12 year olds in other, in other towns or in other situations that may know a lot more. Um, my big message with the book is just to make sure that parents start talking. Um, right. Well, that's, you know, that is my daughter's reaction is what is this about? I, she didn't know anything about this. And so I guess that kind of was my question is like, I, I'm always the avoidance type of parent. I'm like, okay, if we don't talk about it, it doesn't exist, but I know that's not true. And so she saw this book um, when it came and she's like, oh, it's, it's, that's cute. And she liked the ox. And by the way, if you're not watching this on YouTube, if you're just listening on the podcast, the book is called, If You Give an Ox an Oxy. And it is about, it's kind of has the feel of the, if you give a, is it a cookie or the cupcake? So yeah, so there's actually several. It's the children's book series. The original was if you give a mouse a cookie, but there's a moose a muffin, a pig a pancake. There's several in the series. So it's absolutely a parody of that children's book series. Um, if you if you read that series to your kids or, or reading it to them now, if you have young kids, um, if you kind of listen to the storyline, it actually follows the storyline of how a person maybe could become addicted to drugs because um, it's very cause and effect, right? So the moose asks for a muffin, then he needs some jelly, gets jelly on his face. So it's very cause and effect. And then, of course, at the end, the character always goes back to that original thing. So the mouse goes back to the cookie, the pig goes back to the pancake. Um, so I wrote the story following that storyline. Uh, so the, the ox starts with a, a prescription medication called uh, oxycodone. 
um, and then he starts misusing it and eventually becomes addicted and then he gets better and then he relapses. So it follows that same storyline, but then on every page, because this is targeted towards adolescence, I, I included information that explains these really kind of difficult concepts to the, that age group at, at, a, at a reading level and level of detail that they can understand and appreciate. Yeah, it was very educational. As I was reading the story, first I just read kind of the story like on the left-hand page. And then the second time I went through it with my daughter, I kind of went through with the, um, just the definitions and the descriptions and things. Um, I didn't get into the questions with her because she was like, oh, that's weird. I didn't know people did that. So this was a whole new um, topic for her and it kind of opened it up, which I was kind of like relieved after we read it, because like I said, I always try to like avoid touchy subjects with my kids. I'm like, oh, if I tell them about it, then they're going to be curious and oh, they're going to want to like research it or something. But really it wasn't that bad. And so, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I think it is a very good tool. I know that that's your goal in writing this. So for people that maybe don't know, which I'm sure with the crisis in America, most people do, but can you explain a little bit more about an oxy? What is an oxy? Sure. sure. So oxy is just a slang term that is short for a prescription medication called oxycodone. Um, it's been around since the, the mid nineties. Uh, and I, I really chose that particular prescription drug because it, it has the, it sounds good with ox. If you give an ox an oxy. So there, there was the title. Uh, but the, the book is about all types of opioid medications. And so oxycodone is just one type of opioid medications and there are several. Um, and there's opioid, I'm using the term medications cause I'm referring to those that are available by prescription within the medical system. Um, so we have uh, oxycodone, hydrocodone, those are two of the very frequently used uh, uh, medications. Fentanyl is also in the medical system as an example. But then there is heroin, which is also a, an opioid medication, but it, it's, I shouldn't use the word medication, it's an opioid um, substance, but it is illegal. Um, so it, it's not a medication, it's what we refer to as a street drug but it's similar to these uh, medications that I, I just listed. Um, so they're all kind of similar. They're um, actually derived from the opium poppy plant. Um, that's where they originally came from. And that substance has really been used for um, much of history. Uh, it's a very good pain reliever. Uh, um, and so there's definitely a place for these medications. They're very, a very important part of, of pain treatment within the medical system. Um, unfortunately, the, the uh, prescription medica medications have been diverted out of the, um, the, the prescription drug system and have been abused, and that's where we sort of have gotten into the problem that we have today. Yes, it, it, it definitely is. Like you said, it's an epidemic. Um, so what would you say is the average age that a young person is exposed to this risk? Because I read some of the statistics in your book and I was kind of surprised. Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, as I mentioned, opioids have a very important role to play in the medical system. Um, and so they're really used for to treat severe pain. So that's often from surgeries um, or people that have cancer, for example, are in very severe pain. And, that, and that's where we see people using opioids. Um, certainly some children have cancer, some children have, you know, really bad serious illnesses where they have to take uh, opioids like this, unfortunately. Um, 
and then some children have uh, surgeries. I'd say surgeries are probably more common. That's more commonly where kids might be exposed to these. So common surgeries that uh, teenagers or children would have would be like a tonsillectomy, you know, getting your tonsils out, getting your appendix out. So it's perfectly natural and appropriate to prescribe an opioid following a big surgery like that. Um, so, so again, not a lot of kids are going to be exposed to opioids, but if, if they're, you know, have one of these medical conditions, they, they will be. And so the important thing is that when your child is treated um, in, in one of these scenarios, that you're just having that open conversation with both the doctor and um, with your child to just let them know um, that we, we want to use the medication just as the doctor prescribed, because if we start misusing it, then there's risks of taking these medications. And we want to ask our doctors uh, to prescribe the lowest dose that they can and still control pain. Um, and if and we always also want to ask them if there's a, a safer alternative, you know, so for example, if um, you have a little a, a tooth uh, pulled, for example, you know, kids will have, have that happen sometimes. Um, you know, you might want to ask your, your doctor if you could take Tylenol if you don't actually need to have your child take an opioid for a situation like that. So really, you know, just being aware and making your kids aware of those risks as appropriate for their age and having that conversation um, with the doctors. And you talked a little bit about misuse. Can you tell me how sometimes these opioid drugs are misused even when they are prescriptions? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So misuse is a very specific term. Um, and when we say misuse, we mean that you're taking the medication in a way other than the way that it was prescribed. So maybe you're taking more, maybe you're taking it more frequently. Um, so you're not taking it in that way that that doctor originally told you to take it. Um, it can also refer to taking someone else's prescription medication. So you should never take someone else's prescription medication that's considered misuse. Um, also taking a medication to feel high. Um, so opioid medications interact with the pleasure sense center in your brain. Um, so they, they release dopamine, which is the chemical that is released when you laugh or when you get a hug or when you exercise, it's that feeling of happiness. Um, and so some people will start to misuse opioids and take it to try to achieve that level of happiness as opposed to taking it for their, their pain relief. And then lastly, uh, mixing a prescription pain medication with any other drug or alcohol is also considered misuse. Um, so, so that's what misuse means. And misuse can lead downstream to abuse and, and even to addiction or substance use disorder. And the, the research shows that about 4% of 15-year-olds report that they have misused an opioid. Um, so the, it's not a staggeringly high statistic. Um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a good thing, uh, but it's, it's also a bad thing. You know, we really want that to be zero. And of course, uh, you don't want your child to be in that 4%. Um, so. Definitely. Are the rates of uh, people using these illegally, I guess you would say, are the rates going up or down? Yeah, so the rates are actually going down for prescription medication abuse. Um, and, and part of that is that the medical system has really kind of tightened the reins on access to, to these medications. So um, for example, uh, a lot of times for the first time a person gets an opioid prescription, they may only be able to get a seven-day supply um, because typically opioids are used for short-term pain. And so some of the laws in some of the states are such that you can only get a seven-day supply for that first fill. 
Um, and so then if you need more, you may need to go back to your doctor and, and get another prescription. But for, for a lot of people who don't need more, that can kind of prevent um, extra pills laying around the house that then can end up being misused, for example. So, so as we've kind of seen a reduction in the misuse of prescription opioids, what we've actually seen is an increase in the use of street drugs like heroin. Um, so, so that's kind of the second wave of the opioid epidemic. So as, as it was harder to misuse or abuse prescription opioids, more, more people turned to the street drug. It actually became cheaper and easier to access. And now we're kind of in a third wave of, a, of abuse in, in this uh, crisis, and that is through illicit fentanyl. So I, I mentioned fentanyl earlier, um, which is a prescription medication. It's primarily used to treat severe pain like cancer pain. Um, but uh, it, you can make it, it's what we call a synthetic uh, chemical. So you can mix things together and, and make it. And there's uh, some street drug dealers, you know, that have figured out how to produce it. Um, and so they're producing it and it's now in our street supply of drugs. Um, the problem that's really, really scary about the street fent fentanyl is fentanyl is extremely potent. Um, so it takes just a very, very little bit uh, to, to relieve pain and you can quickly um, take too much and end up in an overdose situation. Um, and we're seeing, unfortunately, a lot of that on the news. And so um, with this illegal production of fentanyl, sometimes the doses are too high um, because there's a very small margin of error because it's so strong. Um, so we're seeing a lot of overdose deaths because of this uh, street-produced illicit fentanyl. Wow. That is um, kind of a scary statistic. I, I knew that um, people did make, you know, there's drugs people um, have, I guess. It, how is it related to, say, like a meth um, thing? Is meth considered one of these types of drugs? It's not. It's not. It's, it's, not. A, great, it's, different. it's a great question. And, and as, as you point out, meth is something that um, a lot of people can, do make. Um, uh, similar to, to fentanyl, although I think uh, the raw supplies to make methamphetamine are even easier to get, really, um, than those that are used to make something like fentanyl. Uh, but methamphetamine is a stimulant. Um, oh, I see. So it's a, sort of a different class of medications, um, but it, it's, a, it's a good point that you bring up. Okay, so it's a completely different thing. I get it. Is, yep. So how, how can we help kids to understand better what an opioid addiction actually is? Like just talking to our kids who maybe who've never even been exposed to it. Like, because as I was talking to my daughter, as we were looking through this book and she's like, well, have I ever taken that medication or will I have to? And so she was kind of, and I think it's almost better to talk to kids before they're exposed to it because then they're like, oh, I know what that is. But um, so how do we, how do we talk to our kids, especially I feel like maybe our teenagers who maybe have been offered these drugs, how do we talk to them about how scary the risk is of becoming addicted or even like you said, overdosing and ending up in the hospital or maybe even death? Well, I mean, I sure wish there was a magic bullet and I knew exactly what a person should say to, to, to prevent, you know, kids from experimenting with any type of, of 
drug prescription or illicit or otherwise. But, but what I can say is, you know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you tend to avoid the subject. Uh, and I understand that. And Rebecca, you're certainly not alone. Um, so there's a, a survey of parents and it, it asks a lot of questions about how and what they're talking to their kids about. And only 16% of respondents to this survey said that they were actually talking to their kids about prescription drug abuse. And that's way lower than the percentage of parents that are talking about smoking and alcohol. And frankly, I think that those topics are just, they're easier, right? Um, so, you know, those are things that were around when you and I were, were younger, right? I mean, people weren't really abusing opioids when, when I was uh, younger. Uh, so, you know, and then I think the other complicating factor to do with opioids is that you have this, they are, there is an appropriate medical treatment for them. And so they're not just a street drug. So it's different than something like methamphetamine. So I think it is more difficult to talk to your kids. And, and as I cited the research, you know, with only 16%, people just may not know what to say, you know? So, so that's what I was trying to fill this gap here. And it, it may not be perfect, right? But I mean, it's a start, right? And I, and I really just want people to start having that conversation with their kids because, I mean, the consequences can really just be deadly. You know, when I, we circle back to that example that I gave on the street fentanyl, um, and, and most kids aren't buying their drugs on the street. You know, the ones that report that they're misusing medications, they're actually getting it from friends or family is the most common way. And the second most common way is they're misusing things that have been prescribed by the doctors. Um, but it's so scary to buy something on the street because of that really low margin of error on the chemicals um, and how people can overdose so quickly. Right. That is definitely scary. You have no idea what's in it or how it's been made. So, yeah. When someone is addicted to an opioid drug and they realize they are addicted, what are some of the steps that they can take? And also, what can doctors, I guess, or maybe rehab centers, what do they do to help break this addiction? How difficult yeah. is that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, um, you know, addiction, the medical community has really started to call that, it's, it's a disease and they are using a different terminology for it. They're actually using substance use disorder. Um, and, and the reason that they've kind of migrated to that is that there's some, some negative kind of baggage with that word addiction, right? So um, it's sometimes, you know, people think that it's a moral failing or that, you know, you've made bad choices that have led you to this situation. Um, but in fact, those things aren't true. I mean, it, it truly is, uh, it is a disease and, and the medical establishment, we treat it as such. Um, so we use that term substance use disorder and then we modify it based on what the substance is. So for example, opiate use disorder would be um, the technical term for what we would be talking about today. Um, alcohol use disorder would be another term. Uh, but in terms of treating opiate use disorder, so uh, the, the real standard of care and what evidence-based therapy is, it's a combination of what we call medication-assisted therapy plus behavioral therapy. Um, so the medication-assisted therapy, uh, it's, it's an agent that we uh, use that helps uh, reduce an individual's craving for the opioid, but also it prevents them from experiencing withdrawal symptoms. Um, and so that's a big problem for people that are taking high doses of opioids. If they suddenly stop taking them, then they go into withdrawal and the symptoms of withdrawal are just terrible. 
um, sweats, chills, fever, um, just feels like worse than the worst case of the flu. Um, so by using this medication-assisted therapy, um, we can reduce those cravings, but not throw somebody into withdrawal. Um, but just like everything, um, it's best to incorporate lifestyle changes as well. And that's the behavioral treatment that kind of goes along with that. And that behavioral treatment can look different for different people. Um, so it might be a 12-step program for some people. Uh, it might be uh, changing their environment uh, for, you know, uh, different living situation, you know, to kind of remove whatever those uh, stimuli are for those persons. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, where you're kind of retraining your brain on how to um, deal with certain circumstances. All of those are various potential components of behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Two questions. Um, so you talked about external stimuli, and I'm thinking I, so if, for example, um, someone who's been on drugs, maybe they've been doing opioid drugs since 13 years and they're maybe in their mid-20s, and where they grew up, their whole circle of friends, I'm sure you, I see you shaking your head, so I know you know where I'm going with this, their, their whole circle of friends are doing these things, they're, um, they kind of have this relationship. Um, and then they go away to rehab and they recover and then they come back home and they relapse and then they go away to rehab and recover and then come back. So how do you know, I mean, any good ways for people like this in this particular situation do they have to just move somewhere else forever? I mean, I know a couple of cases where one person keeps coming back to the hometown and they keep um, falling back into the same old patterns. And then another person who actually was able to successfully go through rehab and has been living drug-free for probably over a decade now. Why mm -hmm. is it that some people, well, you could look at this from both sides of the coin. Why is it that some people end up addicted to opioids when they take them very quickly and other people don't become addicted when they take them? You know what I'm saying? Sometimes oh, yeah. more easily. I mean, I know the addiction the disorder is um, possible for everyone, but why does it seem like sometimes it's easier for some people and harder for others? Is there a chemical makeup or? Well, the answer is yes. There are biological differences between different people that make certain people more susceptible to the disorder, for sure. Um, and that's part of, you know, I mentioned that it's a disease. So there's truly a truly a biological underpinning to that. Um, it's also a nature versus nurture thing. Um, so there's things that, there's factors that we know that are risk factors that um, will increase the likelihood that someone may become addicted. So there's genetic components or biologic components. Um, and then there's also sort of um, the nurture things. What are those experiences in your life? Um, so for example, um, if you, in some of the research I cite in my book, it says, you know, if you have parents who disapprove of drug use, then you're less likely to become addicted. If you have witnessed someone overdose, then you're more likely to become addicted. You know, so some of these life experiences, also, um, you know, big traumatic life experiences like childhood abuse or someone that's um, experienced a traumatic event, those traumatic events can, can add up to be uh, risk factors. Um, so really, it's, that, it's a combination of nature versus nurture, um, but we cannot perfectly uh, predict 
if any one individual may or may not develop an, an issue. Um, but I think that education around understanding what some of those risk factors are to help us to become more educated in who we're prescribing what and, and allowing patients to kind of help make that decision. You know, if you as a patient could understand that you have a high propensity for addiction, um, then, you know, how you uh, are treating are treated and what decisions you make in terms of treatment may vary. They may not, but they may. Um, so I think it's just uh, all about sharing that knowledge and, and education so we can make better decisions. Mm, that's good advice. Um, so whenever they do use medications for breaking the cycle, how does a drug say like naltrexone? Is it naltrexone? How do you pronounce naltrexone? it? Yep. How yep. does something naltrexone. like that work? Okay, so um, there are receptors in your brain um, and, and opioids will attach to those receptors in your brain, okay? And so if, if they're attaching to them and they're uh, causing that release of dopamine, we call that an agonist. Um, so that is kind of, it, it makes it work. So, and that's an agonist. The opposite of that would be an antagonist where it basically, basically blocks that receptor in the brain, okay? Um, so naltrexone is an antagonist. And then you have sort of in the middle of the road here, um, one of the most commonly used medications for medication-assisted therapy is called buprenorphine. And that's a mixed agonist antagonist or kind of a partial agonist, partial antagonist. Um, so if you, uh, that, so that uh, does the dual purpose of it decreases those cravings, but it also doesn't throw you into withdrawal. The antagonist would really just throw you into withdrawal because it, it's it's stopping all of the functioning um, opioids. Uh, so someone who's been using opioids for a long time, they've got a lot of that agonist activity going on, um, and so and that's actually really how uh, the overdose agent Narcan works as well. So it pulls all those opioids off of those receptors. Um, and what, what happens with an opioid overdose is that it slows down your breathing and you eventually stop breathing. Um, and so uh, naloxone pulls all of those, uh, those uh, agents off of those receptors um, and then you can really start breathing just almost automatically. Oh, wow. So, that was kind of a technical um, thing. <laughs> a little I, bit of chemistry. Yeah, I did realize that, um, that somehow these drugs were able to block you know, the opioids, um, from I reaching the receptors, but mm -hmm. it sounds like it just kind of unplugs the. Yeah. 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 I always kind of think about them like a little puzzle, you know, how they like fit together the, right. kind of the drugs or the medicines and the receptors. And, um, you're trying, if you're trying to develop a new drug, you're trying to match, like, what is that receptor in the body and, and what's going to hook onto that and how strong it's going to be. Wow. And typically how long does it take for these things to work? I mean, when they go to rehab, I know it's like a combination of behavioral therapy and drugs, but what's the typical rehab time for someone who's, um, has this disorder? I'm going to have to change my language because I've used addiction for so long, but I can see where it really can be a disorder because I do think it's unfair that some people biologically are more prone to becoming addicted to these substances. Yeah, you know, I often compare it to a, another disease that we all know, um, type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes has nature and nurture also, right? So people are genetically predisposed to develop type 2 diabetes, mm -hmm. but there's also 
kind of lifestyle related things in terms of a lack of activity um, or uh, not eating the right foods, you know, so I think people, if you can kind of wrap your head around that, then you can kind of see how substance use disorder is, is a disease and kind of fits in that same mold. Mm -hmm. um, so let's see your question. Oh, was how long uh, are the therapies? You know, that's a, that's a tricky question. Um, generally, I think the easy way to answer it is the longer, the better, you know, so, so the longer that you can stay um, in rehab and the longer that you can stay on, on your MAT and your behavioral therapy, the better. The problem is that um, our insurance companies often just pay for, pay for a, a short term stay at rehab. And so a lot of people can't stay as long as, you know, potentially they need to. Um, because the insurers just aren't covering the length of stay that we really need. And that's why there's some of these nonprofit organizations out there that try to help people with these. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And they're expensive. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure it is expensive mm -hmm. to house and just it, all of the therapy. I mean, just going to therapy in general, even if you're only going an hour once a week, it's expensive. So, um, right. Well, Dr. Happy, thank you so much for writing this book. It's again called If You Give an Ox an Oxy. And I was curious as I read it, do you have plans to write other books in this series? Yes, Maybe I, one about Mary and marijuana? <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yes. Um, well, that will, that will be a tricky one. I, I was just in uh, Denver last week and, you know, in Colorado, marijuana is legal. So right. I've got to got to think through that one. Um, but yeah, definitely a great topic. Um, I think the next one in my, uh, plan will be around vaping. Um, there's, you know, just a, a lot on the news lately about vaping, definitely a big problem. Um, I, I saw in the news that cigarette smoking is the lowest it's ever been, which is a good news story, but we're just replacing it with vaping. Right. Um, in fact, vaping in teenagers is higher than cigarette smoking was at, at its peak. Um, wow. Yeah. So they definitely perceive that it's safer because more of them are using it, you know? Um, so that's, that's the next one I'm, I'm going to tackle. Haven't quite decided on the animal yet, but I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, d I do think that um, you have a point there because I think kid the more kids are doing um, more vaping because they do think that it's safer than smoking cigarettes and which, you know, they both cost money and they're both unnecessary. So I'm just like, save your money for something else. But I get it. It's, it's hard. I know it's hard to be a teenager and Mm -hmm. go through all these things and peer pressure and everything. So I, I really appreciate you writing this book. And again, if you guys are watching, you can see this book. And if you're listening on the podcast, you might want to hop over to YouTube, but you can find all of the links to find Dr. Happy's website and where you can get her book will be in the show notes on the website. So make sure you check that out again. Thank you Dr. Happy for being here. I enjoy talking to you very much. Thanks Rebecca. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.